Hi, I'm Pastor Jeremy, and welcome to the preaching ministry of Nest Baptist, where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. So whether you are a longtime follower of Jesus, or you're exploring what faith in Him might look like, we're glad you're here. It is our prayer that through our sermons, you might better understand who God is, what He has done for you, and what that means for your life. May all of this lead to the worship of God and be for His glory. Uh, today's scripture is from Ephesians 4, verses 7 to 16. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ Jesus from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May God bless his reading this morning. Well, thank you, Randy, for reading that uh, scripture passage for us this morning. And I want to uh, you know, start by letting you in on a little secret this morning. It's that every pastor that I know, including myself, has looked for models to grow their church. Um, looking for the right model, you know, the right formula, in order to get their church on its way to having maybe two services or opening up a bigger campus, you know, expanding the ministry. So, you know, you might be in a church and you see how the church is functioning, uh, what they're doing, how they are speaking, what kinds of programs they're offering, uh, what they are putting forward as vision. And the reality is that there's some kind of a church growth model behind it. You know, maybe, maybe that's starting to wane a little bit, but I think it's still out there for sure. Uh, there's actually a lot of pressure in this, you know, and a lot of, a lot of optimism as well when people uh, sign on to these programs. If we just find the right model, then we will grow. And in my early years, it was all Willow Creek or purpose-driven church model. You know, they were the biggest by far in our circles. And every church needed to have a vision statement that presented your vision in one easy-to-remember sentence that had all of the points of the plan within that sentence. And I was like, wow, like that's quite a sentence. How am I going to come up with that? I remember being like lying awake at night thinking, what is that sentence going to be that I can make everybody memorize? And then if that happens, the church is just going to explode. Like, that was a lot of pressure. Now, you might laugh, but there's actually an entire industry of people who make money on this stuff, you know? Like, the models have ranged uh, over the years and actually over the centuries. They're not new. 
there was the uh, dynamic preacher model. That one began about a couple of hundred years ago, and it was around uh, most uh, church historians would say till around 1965. Um, and then that kind of moved into the therapeutic caregiver model that was popular until about the mid-80s. Uh, then there was the social justice model that kind of took off after that until the early 2000s. And then to the church growth leadership model that turned pastors into CEOs. Well, the seeker-sensitive movement, which was popular when I was a teenager and is still going strong, has kind of morphed now into what is sometimes called catered consumerism. And that is a new model of churches, and it caters to what people want so that it can be successful because, well, who wouldn't want to go to a church that caters after people's perceived needs? But here's another secret. It's that they can all work. You know, you can actually grow your church, and the biggest non-surprise is that you don't even need the Holy Spirit to do it. You know, a perfectly executed model can grow a church and it doesn't even need Jesus to be involved. Especially if you have charismatic leadership, right? And I don't mean like charismatic, like speaking in tongues. I mean like someone with a lot of charisma. Now, fortunately for you guys, you don't have to worry about that here. <laughs> well, I'm not saying I'm void of charisma, but, you know, I don't think that the church is built around my personality, uh, nor should it be. You, my goal is actually to give away as much power as I can and to share the leadership in a biblical way. And that's what this passage is actually all about. It's the true church growth model. It tells us how we go from being children to growing into full maturity. So, kind of like what we said last week, when it comes to the idea of the Trinity, the best place to find out what that means is to go to the Bible and so I think the Bible is the best place to learn about growing a healthy, maturing church. And so we will look at the foundation of how Christ has made this possible. We will look at the gifts that He has given to the church. We'll look at what those gifts are used for. We'll look at what is the goal of those gifts and then how we exercise them, how we are called to exercise the gifts that have been given. And all of this wraps into what we see as this Ephesian model of church growth, and of each of our growth individually. So what is it exactly that Christ has given to the church? Well, let's just read once again in verse 7. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along here that says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace given. Each of us have been given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. So at the start of this passage, we are told that all of us have been given this gift. We aren't told yet what the gift is, just that Christ has given us something that it is pure grace that we have been given it at all. And the gift itself is actually grace. We have all been given grace. This grace was given to us because Jesus' victory, which is talked about here in verses 8 and 9, that is how He is able to give this gift. Remember that humility that we talked about last week. Well, this shows in detail the ultimate Humility, the ultimate condescension of what has happened is talked about in these verses in 8 and 9. Like Paul starts by saying that Jesus ascended to the highest heavens, that his resurrection from the grave, and then 40 days later, Jesus ascends to heaven. He has done this. 
He did this so that he might fill all things. Jesus ascended, rose from the grave, ascended to heaven so that he might fill all things. There's a purpose in his ascension. Jesus is the supreme head of the church who fills all things with his glory. His power and his sovereign rule is given as gifts to his people. This is what we sing about. This is what Jesus has accomplished. But Paul says, well, if we say that he has ascended, then we must also say that he has descended. We're all totally down. Oh, wait. Is there something? We're back on. Partially on. Well, if people who are watching online, they're going to be out of luck for a while. But we can still hear here, so this is good. So Paul says, if we say that he is ascended, then we must also say that he is descended. And we recognize this, uh, the gap that is in between these two things. It is enormous. And in fact, he did to the very lowest regions of the earth, from the highest highs to the lowest lows. Now keep in mind that this does not have hell in view here. And I think sometimes when we read a passage like this, if he descended to the lowest regions, uh, you might take that to mean he's talking about hell. The lower regions of the earth that are being talked about here means Jesus standing on the dust and the rocks of our planet and being lowered into the ground after his death on the cross. That is the lower regions of what is being talked about. So, you know, like it or not, you and I are living in what is known, on what is known as the lower regions of the earth. And when you, when you think about the heights that Jesus ascended from, we see how low this really is and what it took for him. This is why we say it's humility or condescension for him to come down. You know, we won't always be on the lower regions of the earth, but we are now. This also brings up the question, I think, of last week's reading on a practical level of the Apostles' Creed. As we read through that, there's always questions where it says Jesus was crucified and where he was dead and buried and that he descended into hell and on the third day he rose from the dead. And we always wonder, like, why do we say that? Because I, that term actually is worth considering. Descended into hell did not appear in this Apostles' Creed until around 650 AD. And even then, it did not mean that Jesus literally went to hell. Uh, when it was historically uh, preached, uh, talked about, and understood, it, it meant that he either suffered the pains of hell, and this is the way in which John Calvin in the Heidelberg Confession states it, that he suffered the pains of hell, or that Jesus continued in the state of the dead until his resurrection. And this is what it says in the Westminster Confession, part of which we read through in our responsive readings. So he continued in the state of death. That means like when Jesus died, he really died. And for those three days when he was in the ground, he was really dead for the full term of that period. And this is what is being meant in that statement. So, I mean, there's a great article on this by Wayne Grudem, if you are interested, that I can send you. Uh, he goes through the, all of these passages that we speak about, if you're interested in that. But from here, Jesus ascended in victory. He defeated the demonic foes, and that's the captives that are being talked about in verse 8. So Jesus won the victory, and he ascended to the highest heaven to give us gifts of grace. Jesus has done it. This is the vast wealth of Jesus' victory, of what he has done. He defeated Satan's sin and death, and he rose. And all this makes the gifts so much more precious, doesn't it? When we think of the gifts that he has given us and what it cost him, when we think of his condescension, 
of where he came from to come to us, of all that he gave up in coming here, we think, man, was this gift ever incredible that we have been given, the gift of eternal life, the gift of relationship with God, God's wrath being satisfied, sins being forgiven, new life in the Holy Spirit being given to each of us, and it cost a great, great deal. All of this makes the gift so much more precious. I don't know if you've ever been given a gift that doesn't cost a person very much. You know, maybe you've been given a gift and they're like, well, you know, it's no big deal. It was kind of got it on a BOGO sale. You know, buy one, get one. So I had one, so I just thought I'd give you the other one. You'd be like, oh, well, thanks for thinking of me. You know, it would be on a certain context. But when you know when a person really sacrificed, it was really costly. What they give you was well thought through and it cost them greatly. That gift to receive is something that is so precious to us and it does something to our heart. And so that is why it is important to see all that it has cost Jesus Christ to give us this gift together. The gift that we know of eternal life and also the gift that we know that is being talked about in fuller detail in this passage. So if we take a look at what some of these things are, I probably lost control of this thing as well, I would think. But we are going to go to verse 11. There it is, thank you. What are these gifts? So there are, of course, certain places in the New Testament that give detailed lists of all of the gifts that the church has been given. But here Paul does is he focuses on gifts to the church in a slightly different way. Now this one feels a little bit awkward for me to be teaching on because we are told here that the leadership in the church, and yes, even pastors, depending on the translation that you are reading from, it says that they are the key gifts to the members of the church have been given in order to grow to full maturity. So verse 11, it says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, pastors, and teachers. These are, these are some of the gifts that Paul is focusing on in this passage. So when he says this, uh, or when I say this, and when we talk about these kind of things, I'm not saying, hey, look at me. Like, I'm your greatest gift. Like, that would be a little weird. That'd be a little awkward. That would be not quite correct. But what this does say, though, is that the Bible's method of church growth and the church's health is and begins with healthy, godly leadership. And Paul gives some detail here of what that looks like and who's all involved with that. He starts off with the very first one of being the apostles. Oops, sorry, there we go, we're back on. The first gifted leadership group that Paul gives here are the apostles. And these are the same apostles that Paul referred to in chapters 3 and 2 as being the 12, when he speaks of the apostles here. These are the 12. And and that's what I sometimes call as capital A Apostles. Uh, this, is, uh, this is called in Acts 1, the office of apostle. It's not the general gifting of apostleship that is mentioned elsewhere as a spiritual gift, but this is something else that Paul has in view here. In this sense, the apostles are people we don't have around anymore, but of course we do in the sense of the biblical and the historical documents. We've been given the apostles and their writings as gifts. They were with Jesus, they were eyewitnesses of the risen Christ, and they started the early church, and they wrote some of the New Testament books. These are the capital A apostles that Scripture speaks of. Now, the last apostle was Paul, and he says so in 1 Corinthians 15. So we know that this office is an ongoing office of the church, but Paul was the final apostle, where he makes mention of the one qualification of an apostle that he received in a supernatural way, because he was born too late to be otherwise qualified 
as a capital A apostle. He says this in, in 1 Corinthians 15, then he, meaning Jesus, he appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to even be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul considers himself as the least of the apostles and one who was not born at the right time to even have been an apostle, to have seen the risen Christ. But God in His sovereignty, He saves Paul and Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And so there we have our full complement of apostles. They are gifts to us for our growth and we hear all about them and we read of them and teach on them as we are this morning. The prophets are in the same way is the second one that's mentioned. Not those with the gift of prophecy in general, but the prophets we know as those from the Old and New Testament who proclaimed alongside the apostles. Now, these two groups of people were given to the church to get her established, to the formation of the church, but now their role is assumed by the canonical writings of the New Testament. And it worked. It worked. Putting all of these writings together formed the church. They established the church within the most hostile of climates where there's no human way it would have been possible to start a religion like Christianity. I mean, things like we talked about last week, it's like you're called to humility. Why would we ever join a group of people who are called to humility and who exercise humility? That is not common in Greco-Roman culture. And despite all of these cultural odds, at probably a far greater extent than what we even experience today, Christianity just absolutely exploded through the writings of the apostles, the prophets, the Holy Spirit doing His work in building the church. So the scholar F.F. Bruce explains that though these guys were not perpetuated beyond the apostolic age, what they did and how they functioned did not disappear. They continued through evangelists, through pastors and teachers and through even the Bible readings that many of you are being a part of where we read and are encouraged by them. So that means that we have been given the writings of the prophets and the apostles as a gift to the church for our growth, for our maturity. And the church grows in wisdom and maturity as each member knows the Word of God, meditates on the Word of God, and lives it out. The church also needs to be instructed in it, and that's where Paul goes next. So it's knowing it, having it, reading it, but also being instructed on it. And the next one that's talked about is evangelists. Now, these are the people who are specifically gifted in proclaiming the gospel. We are called to do this, but some are particularly given this gift. Proclaiming the gospel to those who have not yet trusted in it in a way that is understandable, in the way in which the Holy Spirit uses, in particular, to bring people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I was kind of racking my brain trying to think about who are some of these evangelists of our day. And some of you may consider or, or know that you have the gift of evangelism. It's a personal gift. Many people are given. And there are also these like, you know, almost like super evangelists that we know well. And it seems to be something that kind of peaked in the 80s. It's kind of waned off a little bit since then. Great evangelists like Billy Graham. I think there was even a guy from Winnipeg, I believe. Uh, I don't know if you mentioned his last name was Moore. There was an evangelist, a very well-known evangelist from Winnipeg. I think there was someone with the last name of Winter, someone, Paul Winter or something. I can't remember exactly. I remember going to a crusade back in the 80s and arenas and stadiums that people would be preaching and many people coming 
to saving faith in Jesus Christ. It goes all the way back to one of my favorites, George Whitfield and Charles Spurgeon, these evangelists that would preach in the town squares, and many, many people would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you don't really hear of that stuff as much anymore. Uh, maybe sometimes it's not a bad thing. A lot of those guys didn't have great reputations, the ones that kind of went on to TV, you know, those guys, the televangelists, uh, send me your money kind of guys, kind of left a bad taste in people's mouths about Christianity. It's still happening, I'm sure. I think you can actually get TV channels that still have these guys on them, actually. But nonetheless, not quite what they used to be. But what this is telling us is that evangelists, they're not meant to be celebrities. It's not a celebrity status. They're meant to be ordinary church members. An evangelist is an ordinary church member. Ordinary people who effectively and passionately share their faith with their schoolmates, with their friends, with their family members, even doing it publicly when the occasion presents itself. This is a gift that Jesus Christ has given to the church. And when you have people like that exercising their gifts, and you have what I would consider the greatest means of evangelism, which is a healthy local church, it's an awesome thing. People practicing evangelism and being within the ultimate tool of evangelism, the church, it's, a, it's an awesome thing. A healthy local church is God's chosen method of evangelism, and it stands as a lighthouse in a city. And within that body, you have people who are doing the work of evangelists. Now, the next grouping it talks about is shepherds, teachers. Now, then, this is the last pair in Paul's list. Now, the word shepherd is also the word pastor or the word elder. These are interchangeable words. And the word teacher is attached to it, not as a separate gift, but actually part of the uh, character of the pastor elder. And you can see that in the Greek conjoining word and between these two, which is different than the conjoining words between the other ones. And if you want to know more about that, you can ask Noah for further clarification. He would be happy to explain it to you. Uh, he is our resident Greek scholar. But elsewhere, we have teachers apart from being an elder... Uh, but the pastor and elder is always linked with teaching. So what Scripture is telling us here is that the leadership in a church is given to the church as a gift from Christ who won a great victory to make the gift possible. That is what we have seen so far in this passage. He descended low and ascended high to make this gift possible is the thrust of the passage so far. Now this is a high calling and Paul has the membership of the church in view here. If this person or these persons are going to be your shepherd, uh, which is an image that goes all the way back to the Old Testament with God being the great shepherd of the people and Jesus shepherding His people. And then these guys, these pastors, they are actually what we would call under-shepherds. We are to shepherd the sheep and to care for them as the ones who are under the care of the chief shepherd. So then we are told here, and in 1 Peter 5, that Christ shepherds His flock, through the under-shepherds, the pastors, and the elders. Now, I'm not the shepherd. The elders are not the shepherds. We have the gift of shepherding, but Jesus is your shepherd, and what the elders' task is and the gift that they are given is to be able to faithfully work under His authority. And if they ever move from under that authority, they are disqualified from that office. We are the under-shepherds. Now, that is a call that we enter into, and I will say, with great fear and trepidation. And why do I say that? Because in Hebrews chapter 13, we are told this, 
It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So what this means is one day myself and all the other pastors and elders or whatever they are called in the different denominational churches, sometimes people give different names to them, but what this means is that we'll all have to stand before God and give an account for the flock that was under our care. And that's the kind of thing that influences every decision we make in our church. That's something that keeps most people away often from pursuing the office of pastor elder because this is how high of a calling it is. It's a calling and it's not for everyone. It's not for the faint-hearted. It's not to be entered into lightly. And it brings up the obvious question, well then who are the ones that we will be held accountable for? And that's something I think about, meditate on, pray about regularly. You know, what about the person that comes at Christmas and Easter? You know, will we be held accountable for that person? You know, what about the person that pops in when they don't have anything else going on on a Sunday morning? What about the person that only watches online? What about the person who seems to be coming regularly, is taking part of the ministries and maybe even serving? You know, ultimately, I have to say, well, you know, particularly the last group, I, I'm not exactly sure, but I think for the first ones that I mentioned there, I don't think so. Uh, will I be held accountable for God for the people in our church who haven't become members? You know, I don't, I don't know, and that question weighs heavily on me. Because those who haven't become members have not placed themselves under the authority of their brothers and sisters in the body. And they haven't placed themselves under the leadership's authority that is being talked about here and in 1 Peter 5 and Hebrews 13. Because it's actually very clear when you look through it of what these passages mean. And that's why membership isn't a light question. You always think, well, why do we talk about membership so much? Why are we always being encouraged in it? Because we read through passages like this, it just, wow, puts like a real, a real weight on it. Like it's really something. And this idea of authority and placing ourselves under the authority of our brothers and sisters in Christ is no light matter. And make no mistake, this Ephesian church, as all the New Testament churches and the churches that came after them, they all had a membership. All of them did. We don't know exactly what the mode of membership was, but there was definitely a mode, and they had lists, they had very clear lists, and they knew who was and who was not a member. Now, I won't get into that here, but you can come to the Nest 101 if you want to learn more about that. But their mode of membership, how they became known as members, is something we don't know. It likely, most likely, would have been baptism. That is a likely marker of membership in the New Testament church. Uh, it might have been some kind of a public affirmation within the church. I don't know if it was signing your name on a piece of papyrus, uh, though I kind of doubt it. I don't think that was it, but there was some way because they knew and they had lists, we are told. But there was a membership, and those in the membership did two significant things that all members covenant to do. Number one, they submit themselves to their brothers and sisters in the body. They say, I will be willing, I'm willing to place myself under one another's authority. It's a mutual submission that says we need each other to come to maturity in the faith. That's Ephesians 4.13. So we make a formal covenant saying, yeah, I'm willing to do that. I think this is important and I see this biblically. A non-member who is not affirmed to anyone that accountability is under the position of being their own authority. Now, second, members covenant to being under the authority of their spiritual leadership that this passage is talking about. And once again, this is clearly laid out as it is in Hebrews 13.17. That's kind of a tough one, right? I mean, how many of us like having authority over us? It can be a, 
a prickly kind of conversation. It's not a popular sentiment in our culture. I am my own authority. I am my own boss. I do what I want is kind of the spirit of the age. And that would be like so far from the New Testament church. I don't think there's anything that could be further from the New Testament church. They recognize their interdependence and their need to be under one another's authority and the authority of the church. And I promise you, faithful shepherds, pastors, elders, they don't teach this because they want to rule over more people. They do it with great, great fear and trepidation and humility. Every passage I've referred to speaks to that. It really calls to that kind of humility, particularly 1 Peter 5 passage just hits on it time and time again. And so we're seeing that membership in the body of Christ with the Bible at the foundation, which is the prophets and the apostles, that's the Bible as the foundation, and with healthy leadership is Christ's gift to the church and the means by which the church grows as a body and also as individuals. And so let's take a look at that. Why are these gifts given? What is the purpose? And once again, in verse 12 to 14, it says the purpose, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature uh, manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. So put simply, the gifts are given for discipleship and the sanctification that we talked about in our responsive reading this morning. It says that God has given gifted spiritual leadership to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That means a few things. Number one, it means that the leadership in a church doesn't do all of the work in the body. And second, it, says, it tells us that leadership's task is equipping. Now that means that you can't just hire people to do all of the work. And I've seen you know, churches that certainly do this, huge staff teams that do most of the work, creating an environment where you can just come in on a Sunday, take it all in and then, and then leave take advantage of the programs they offered, never really contribute. But I started off by saying that earlier that it was the seeker-sensitive model that kind of created this. The seeker-sensitive model has turned into that consumer-driven model of doing church. But what we're seeing is that's not really what the church is. Going to church in that context is more like kind of like if you're going to a concert or going to a, a conference or, or some kind of an event. It's not really biblical church. And that sounds harsh, but I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just explaining to you what the Bible says here of what it means to live in this kind of relationship together. So then leadership's whole thrust is just to set a model of healthy ministry that we can all do together, to be radically active in that and to create an environment where all of the members are doing gospel work together, all members, each and every one of us, and that's a biblical church. And praise God, we have so much of that going on here. You know, people serving in all kinds of ways. And this is why I want to, part of his new constitution is creating this new ministry position called the volunteer ministry coordinator. Someone who can help everyone get connected with their gifts and to use them to edify the church. I think this is so important. We want to continue to be doing this as a church and to increase that. Because when that happens, the body of Christ, it's built up. It becomes healthy and it really grows but what does it grow to? Well, that's next. It means maturity. That growth means maturity in this passage. It speaks to uh, a couple of times here. Now, Tanya and I used to play in a band back in the day. 
there's actually video evidence of this. Uh, Tanya's not here to defend herself right now. She's downstairs with the kids, so she probably wouldn't want me saying that, but it was true. Uh, and uh, in this band that we played together in, we had this guy who had, he had a hard time being in a band. Uh, I would say one of our members, you know, he was the singer. Well, maybe I would more accurately say vocalist. He didn't really sing all that. It wasn't really, you know, traditional singing. And all he had to do, though, all he had to do was bring uh, to the gigs were his notebook and his microphone, you know? Like, he could literally just put them in his back pocket. Like, you know, really shouldn't be that much of an issue. But he never did. Like, you'd always forget something. And then one week, you know, he was an interesting guy because one week, one week he'd be a carnivore. And then the next week he would show up and he was disgusted at meat. And now he was a vegetarian. And then one week we would be kind of worried is like, is he an alcoholic? Or plenty. But those who are mature, they're steady and they're focused. They're not tossed to and fro. And this is what we all want to grow up into a church. This is a bit of a model of what maturity means. That though there's incredible pressure around us to change our views, to change the things that we think, we maintain this maturity together with one another in the body of Christ. The goal is to become the fullness the goal is growth, it's sanctification, it's discipleship, and we all need one another in order to do this. We can't do this on our own. We have to put ourselves under one another's authority for this to happen. We need those kind of family connections. You know, Ephesians has done such a good job of telling us that we've become this new people under God together, and we need one another so deeply in order for this to happen. And that's what membership is, and that is the growth model that we have of the New Testament. We all work together so that there is mutual growth in all of our lives, together and as a church. And this is really the goal of our discipleship groups, the goal of our life groups. We want to create this uh, community here that is able to live this out and to grow in these areas. And we are really looking forward to being able to kind of re-kicking all of this stuff off in a fresh way in fall because we know we need to get back into this together. So there's kind of the New Testament church growth model. Christ's gift to the church, spiritual leadership that equips every saint to use the gifts that they have been given to build up the body of Christ. That's the Ephesians model of church growth. But there's one more thing that is left to say in order for this to become a reality and it is such an important undergirding of all of these things. And we are told about them in verse 15 and 16 that says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so here is that unifying, all-important factor. Rather than being tossed around like children, we grow into maturity by speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. So this concept of truth is really important because this is the message and this is how the message is then proclaimed. And it is done this way because this is the gospel. What we are called to do, how we are called to do it, is a model of what the gospel actually is. Speaking the truth in love. Truth and love together. Now, first of all, I should note that the word love here, um, and I kind of hesitate to even try to pronounce this word, 
It is alithoentus. Now, that sounds, I, I know, even when I say that, it sounds wrong when I hear it. It sounds Spanish when I say it. But that is the Greek word for what this word is. And this word doesn't just mean truth, but it's more like truthing. Truthing. Now, this has the idea behind it of not just speaking the truth, but actually doing the truth. So the idea is truthing in love, living a life, speaking the words, and living the life of what it means to love and speaking the truth. And these are two elements that you can't separate from one another. You can't have only truth without love. And you can't use truth as like a club to bludgeon people into acceptance and obedience. You know, the world is full of people who are on the right and who are on the left. And they thrive on declaring what they see as being truth. And I would say that the last adjective that you would ever use to describe what you're seeing is loving. It's like a club that is being used to bludgeon people with what they see as being truth. Now, there doesn't appear to be a whole lot of love behind so much of what we hear of what is declared as truth these days. But you also can't have only love when it's divorced from truth. It, it stops being truth, in fact, in that instance. You know, you might, you might even think of a statement of just like, you know, it sounds good to accept everyone just exactly however that person is. That seems like the most loving thing that we could possibly do. Well, what if that thing, though, what if it's causing them harm? What if it's actually detrimental to them and to the people who are around them? Sounds like a loving thing to say, but it's actually devoid of love. There's no love in that, really. Because in order for love to abound, sometimes there's got to be hard, truthful things that must be heard. And that, I said, is the essence of the gospel. That is what the gospel is. Because before we come to the loving God of grace that saves us, we have to first recognize who we truly are. We have to recognize our sin. And that's bad news. I mean, that's, that's what love is, is to actually to recognize that. The bad news has to be realized first because it's truth. The bad news is true. And then the greatest love can be shown because despite that sin, despite our hard and our stubborn, our stubborn hearts that were set against God, He loved us. In the midst of the worst part of who we are, that we were loved and that God has saved us. And so this is why we say that the gift becomes so much greater when we understand what is behind it. That while we were yet enemies of His, He died for us. You know, we see the extent of this love, and this is the truth that we have to understand that we weren't great. We weren't doing okay. We weren't able to save ourselves. Something had to be done, and that's the truth that needs to be heard as the love comes in. I mean, like, look at the passage I often refer to from Exodus 34, because God tells Moses exactly who he is as God and what the message of the entire Bible is. You know, we say that the Bible, beginning to end, is the gospel message all throughout it. And we can see that so clearly in a passage like this, where God says uh, to Moses, and you hear in here the gospel, and he starts with love, but then he moves to the truth. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful, who is gracious, who is slow to anger, who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, forgiving transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. There's guilt. There is a guilt that needs to be understood as God's love moves in. And that is speaking the truth in love. 
And that's what we are called to do for one another, to help one another in this. Jesus has done it for us, and now we can do it for one another. And that's what membership signifies. It's, it's you and I entering into a covenant relationship with one another that says this. It says, I need you to speak that truth in love to me. I need it. And I will commit to speaking the truth in love to you as well. And we can never divorce the word love from that truth because it'll never be heard. No one's ever going to listen to it or heed it or grow by it if it is only truth and there is no love in it and you can't have only love without that truth. This is what we need. I need this. I place myself under that same authority that everyone else does in the vital role in its growth. And together, as each of you uses those gifts that you have been given, we all reach the full unity of the faith and the knowledge of Jesus. This is how God has called and equipped it to grow. Will you join him in that? Let's pray together. Father, we are just so grateful for your word. And when we read passages like this, we see exactly what it is that you have done for us, what it has cost you. And Lord, all of these things, you, you, know, you didn't do it so that we would just kind of like sit by, but Lord, you did this for our, our growth and for our maturity. And so God, I pray that we would like just sort of take like uh, inventory of our lives. Are we growing? Are we growing in our faith and our knowledge into the fullness of Jesus Christ? This is an ongoing thing that we will be doing here on earth, this process of sanctification until your return, Lord, when you will make us each perfect. We look forward to that day. And God, but I pray that we would really be faithful in growing in that maturity in the meantime. And in so doing that we would build up the body of Christ together that we would each contribute towards those gifts that you have give, been given to us, placing ourselves under one another's authority and the leadership within the church and Jesus who is the chief shepherd. And Lord, in so doing this, the church just becomes this massive tool of evangelism to a city and to a community that needs so deeply the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the hope that we have. You know, that great whiteout party that we look forward to in that day, Father. We hold that out before us knowing that it is coming and we want to be able to, you know, do what we can to be faithful in the midst of it to make that party as large as possible. And so, God, I pray that as a church we would be faithful in our growth and in our maturity together. And as individuals, we would be growing up into the fullness of Christ day by day. And that's, we recognize that's not always just like a clear and direct ramp that always moves in an upward direction. And sometimes there are difficulties in life and there are tough times that we need to walk through. And God, I know that there are people who are even here this morning that are walking through one of those seasons. A season where it doesn't feel like we're on this growth of sanctification and maturity and it's been tough and it's hard. Lord, there are many of us here who are walking through that today, but we know that what we have in Jesus Christ and through his Holy Spirit is sufficient. That you are able to give us what we need, that, uh, that we may be pressed on every side, but we would not be crushed. We will never be ultimately and finally crushed when we have Jesus Christ at the core and the center of who we are. And so, Father, I pray that those who are here this morning that are struggling in that direction, Lord, would just hold firm to their faith and their hope in Jesus Christ, and how one day you will set all things right. You will turn all things upside down. You will wipe away every tear from every eye and all things will be made full in their finality in Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, that in the, in the meantime and in these difficult times, 
that you would cause their legs to be strong, to be able to stand up under the weight and the pressure. So, Father, we need one another to do this. We need the body of Christ. We need the church. We can't do this on our own. And I pray that we would be humble enough to put ourselves underneath the authority of one another to walk this journey together as you have called us to, and that we would be willing and open to be able to have more new people come in and do that too. It wouldn't be a closed circle, but Lord, it would be this, uh, this space where we would encourage others as well in this journey. So thank you for this call that you have given to us, and I just pray that we would think you know, long and hard about these things, God, and uh, that we would be encouraged by them as well. So thank you for all that we have in Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.